But it's great to be back. I do want to thank the elders for once again giving me this wonderful opportunity to come and to preach the word. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, if, you're, if you brought your Bibles. And I just want to start by just reading the text. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we, we love your word. We love Christ. We want our lives to be pleasing to him, to be glorifying to him. And this morning, we want this sermon to, to exalt Christ, to praise him, to glorify him, that your people would leave here with thoughts of him, with their hearts filled with joy as they think on and they dwell on and they meditate upon their Savior. And we just ask that you would help me as I seek to do that which is impossible, which is to give glory to Christ that he truly deserves. Let your Spirit do what you promise, that you would point us to Christ this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was trying to think of a good example that I could start the sermon with. And the only one I could think of was one that was kind of close to home. Like all of you, I was once lost. I was following after the course of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air. I lived a life in sin. And then Lord, the Lord in his gracious kindness and mercy saved me at one in the morning, lying in a bed, listening to a sermon on an iPhone. I didn't have a local church. I didn't have any pastors. I didn't know much theology. And in fact, the little bit of theology that I did know was wrong. But immediately after my conversion, I was convinced that I really didn't need a local church. I really didn't need anyone to pastor me. I mean, after all, the first three months of my Christian life were so easy. It was so amazing how easy it was to avoid sin. The sin that had plagued me was now gone. I was free. He, he liberated me. And I foolishly thought that I could be pastored, pastored and led by preachers via the internet. I'm not recommending that. Don't do that. But that illusion quickly came crashing down around me. As the honeymoon ended and the real battle with sin began, I began to realize that I just didn't know how to do this. Four months after being saved, I was completely confused. What happened? Everything was so easy. Why am I now struggling? I thought he had liberated me. And because I decided I didn't need to be in a local church, 
I had no one to ask. No one to guide me. It was a very difficult time. You see, I had read my Bible. I had spent many hours listening to guys like MacArthur and Sproul and Washer. I knew what Scripture said I was supposed to be. And then I looked at my life and realized that's not what I was. It didn't seem that I was living the way I was called to live. Colossians 1.10, Paul says we are to be pleasing to him in all respects, in every way. Or in Romans 12, when Paul told the Romans, you are to offer not dead animals as sacrifices, you are to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Or in Philippians, an epistle that speaks much about joy, seemed to rob me of my joy as I read that Paul said, you are to be above reproach. No one can lay a charge at your feet of sin. It's the same standard Paul gave for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The same idea is expressed in Ephesians 5 when he named out some sins and he said, these shouldn't even be named among you. And here I am, a new believer. I really want to be pleasing to God. I want to live a good life. I want to walk in a manner worthy of my, my calling. But I just keep failing over and over and over. And just like the Colossians, I resorted to using the wrong methods. I thought that I could live the life pleasing to Christ my way or a way that the world said or the way the pagan religions say I should live. Colossians had the same struggles. They wanted to be pleasing to Christ and it seemed like they came short. And in chapter 2, Paul talks about the false teachers who had come into Colossae. You see, these Colossian believers wanted to know how to live a godly life. And the false teachers were more than happy to give them some suggestions on what they could do. They said in order to be pleasing to God, the Colossians needed secret knowledge and wisdom. And of course, this knowledge and wisdom could only come from those particular teachers. Because false teachers always point you to themselves and keep you entrapped to them. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. They said if you want to be pleasing to God, what you need is their wisdom and their knowledge. Others said that in order to be pleasing to God, you needed to obey the Sabbath laws. You need to keep the festivals. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. And still others said that they themselves had some kind of special connection with heaven. That they had contact with angels and they had visions. Colossians 2, 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of, the, of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen. If you've turned on TBN lately, you hear a lot of that. And finally, others claim that the means to live a life pleasing to Christ and God is found in the harsh treatment of your body. 
like the medieval Roman Catholic methods of flogging yourself or sleeping on wooden planks, denying your body of any comfort. Colossians 2.23, Paul gives his evaluation of all of these methods. He says, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of of the body. These sound really good. These sound like the way to live a life pleasing to God. But he finishes that verse and says, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. None of these things can restrain the flesh. None of these things will help you live a life pleasing to God. If you want to live a life that finds favor in heaven, you can't use the world's method. Jesus said, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. When you came to Christ, when you were converted, you died to the world. Colossians 2.20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, he's not questioning the legitimacy of their conversion. He's not calling into question whether or not they're actually Christian. He's assuming it. They have died to the world. They have died to the world's methodology of pleasing God. In Romans 6, verse 6, He says that our old self was crucified with Christ. When Christ died, the believer died with him. The old man, the old life that you used to live is now dead. The life of chasing our own desires, of following after the world, of ignoring God, that life is gone. It died with Christ. That person died at your conversion. Paul said in Romans 6, 4, not only did the old self die, but we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You died, I died at conversion, and you have been given new life. A new life, a spiritual life. Paul said in Ephesians 2.5, he made us alive together with Christ. And now here in Colossians 3.1, he says, Therefore, because you have died, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. Again, he's assuming that's true. He's assuming that you truly are a believer that you truly have been raised to newness of life. And the verb here is passive. They didn't raise themselves. They didn't give themselves new life. They didn't come to this life by some effort of their own. They didn't earn it. You received it. Ephesians 2 said it was a gift. You couldn't get it for yourself. And now as a result of this new life, You should desire to do as Paul says in Colossians 1.10, to be pleasing to him in every way. And so Paul here in chapter 3 is going to transition, and he's going to begin to give us the practical means by which we can live a life that is pleasing to God. Paul, how do I do this? How can I live a life that's pleasing to God? 
If you want to live a life pleasing to God, we just need to ask three simple questions of the text. And that'll get us through the passage. Three simple questions we're going to ask. What must I do? How do I do it? And why should I do it? Three simple questions. What must I do? How do I do it? And why should I do it? Let's answer the very first question. To live a life pleasing to God, what must I do? Look at verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. What are you supposed to do? You're to keep seeking the things above. What does that mean, though? Keep seeking. It refers to devoting serious effort to obtain, to work towards a goal, or to strive to accomplish a task. You might say it's a preoccupation with one thing, to be fixated on one thing. It can refer to something that's limited in time. For example, you might be preoccupied with an important assignment at work. You might be preoccupied with something that's going on at home or a particular event that's happening in the world. But Paul here is not speaking about short-term preoccupation. He's talking about a lifestyle of being preoccupied, of having your heart, your mind, and your desires fixated on what? The things above. This phrase is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used once here in verse 1, and it's used again in verse 2. And in both cases, it's a reference to heaven. You can say, he's saying, seek after heaven. This could be a reference to pearly gates, the translucent golden streets. But this also refers to the values, the principles, and the standards of heaven. You might say to be heavenly-minded. It's an all-encompassing term that refers to everything in heaven. And to be sure, there is much benefit to thinking on, dwelling on, considering the realities of heaven. Pastor just preached for two weeks on heaven. I'm not going to go through and rehash that. But I do want to focus on Paul's overarching point. He wants us to align ourselves with the priorities of heaven. You might say he wants us to be heavenly minded, to focus on the things that are priorities for heaven, to be concerned with things that people in heaven are concerned about, to live as, as your Christian life as a citizen of heaven today, and to focus our thoughts, our minds, our desires on the things that heaven focuses on. So here's the question. What does heaven focus on? Paul tells us, look at verse 1 again. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Christ is the central focus of heaven. He's the central theme of our text. In four verses, Paul makes five references to Christ. Verse 1. You have been raised up with Christ. Verse 1 again, where Christ is. Verse 3, you are hidden with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ, 
Verse 4 again, revealed with him. Five times in four verses, Paul points directly to Christ. And in fact, the whole argument of the epistle of the Coloss- to the Colossians is the supremacy of Christ over everything else. That Christ is supreme. That he is sufficient for all of your needs. The problem with the false teachers is that they pushed people away from Christ. They pushed them to follow their own efforts. They pushed people to follow them. To seek after and desire someone or something other than Christ. The false teachers claimed that they had special wisdom that was necessary to please God. That was necessary for the Colossians to enter into heaven. But just consider how Paul counters the argument. In Colossians 2.3, if you want to look at that real quick. Notice what he says. I'll just read the verse. That our hearts may be in, excuse me, in whom, speaking of Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not the false teachers who have the knowledge. It's not the false teachers who have the wisdom. It's Christ. True wisdom, true heavenly wisdom is found in Christ. And again, in Colossians 2.8, we read the verse earlier, but I just want you to look at the end of the verse. He doesn't want them to focus on the wisdom and the, the teachings of the false teachers. He says, be focused on the wisdom that is according to Christ. In 2.17, when he discussed the problems with chasing after feasts and festivals and following the Mosaic law, notice how he counters that argument. He says, these are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is superior to all of them. None of these are sufficient to aid you and to help you live a life pleasing to God. You cannot please God through your obedience to him. And if you want to live the Christian life, if you want to be pleasing to him, what should you do? You should keep seeking after Christ. Make the Lord Jesus Christ preeminent in your life. Make him the focus of your life. Make him the sum of your desires. Look at the end of verse 1 in chapter 3. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is an interesting statement. In the ancient world, a king would sit on his throne and his first minister would be to his right. The right place of the king, the right side of the king, is what every mother wanted to see her child fill. Every mother wanted to see her child standing to the right side of the king. It was a place of power. It was a place of prominence, of prestige. It was the place of honor. If the king really wanted to honor someone, he would allow them to stand on his right side. Yet in the ancient world, the minister was always standing. The king never allowed him to sit there. Because if he sat down next to the king, what it says is he is equal to the king. He shares in the king's authority and the king's power and the king's sovereignty. So the first minister would always stand. But Paul here points to Christ and he says, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he is seated. 
He is reigning with God. He shares the sovereignty of God. He shares the glory of God. He shares the honor of God. He is God. Paul explains the supremacy of Christ back in chapter 1. If you'll turn to verse 15. Listen to how he describes the Lord Jesus here as being supreme over everything. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Did you hear that? That Christ would have first place in everything. Jesus Christ has the first place, the highest place of honor in heaven. He is the first place in all of the universe. The question is, does Jesus Christ have the first place in your life? Is he preeminent in my life? Do you truly seek him? Is your life truly fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he the object of your desires? The ultimate end of everything that you want is Christ. Pastor asked a couple weeks ago if you got to heaven and Jesus was not there, would it matter? Would it still be heaven? And it's so easy to get lost and distracted. It's so easy to set aside our first love, to set our affections and our desires on something other than Christ. The easiest and most obvious way this happens, speaking of modern day false teachers, is a teacher who motivates and compels people to go to Christ, not for Christ himself, but for what they can get from him. We call this the prosperity gospel. They're there not for Christ, they're there for stuff. I'm going to Jesus because Jesus is going to give me a better job. Jesus is going to give me a nicer car. He's going to give me possessions and wealth. He's going to keep me from suffering. He's going to deliver me from some sickness. It's the potential benefits that Christ might give them that they really want. They don't desire him. This is obvious error. But it's also possible that even people in this church, even people right now who are preaching, can make the same mistake. We We get saved, our desires change, and now we just want to be holy. And you have that one sin that's just plaguing you, and your whole life is now devoted to trying to be free of this one sin. It becomes your consuming, all-out desire. It's all you want, just get me free of this one sin. It becomes the focus of your life. Everything becomes devoted to being free of this one sin. Is it good to want to be free of sin? Of course. But in our zeal for something good, 
we abandon the best. We exalt our desire to be holy, our desire to be free from sin. We exalt it so high that Jesus takes a second place. And we end up in works righteousness thinking that I can somehow get myself free from sin. That the power is somehow in me. Worse than that, Jesus becomes merely the instrument by which I'm going to get what I want. This is idolatry. How do you know if this is happening? Because when this happens, what you'll do is you'll end up going to the Bible to read your Bible. And you won't go there so you can learn about the Lord. You won't go there so you can love Him more. You'll go to the Bible so you can check a box. I completed this on my Bible reading plan. That's the desire to just be obedient. I, I went to the Bible so I could be ready for Bible study. I went and studied the Bible so I could preach this morning. But I didn't go into the Word to learn about a person. What about a prayer life? A life of prayer that's marked by nothing but requests, even if the requests are good. You go there seeking only something for yourself. Longing for grace, sanctification, mercy, guidance. Again, all good desires that you should have. But these are the fruit of a relationship with Christ. They are not the means by which you're going to be pleasing to Christ. They are not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of my life, the goal of your life is to love the Lord Jesus Christ more. And to be devoted to Him. These are products of a relationship with Christ. Is this you? Have you left your first love? Have you embraced the good and abandoned the best? Are you pursuing someone or something other than Christ? Let me do another test here. When you sin, what bothers you more? That you broke the law or that you offended Christ? Jesus had to suffer the wrath of God for each and every sin. Every time I commit a sin, Christ had to pay for that sin. Each one. And when I go back and I willfully sin again, what I'm essentially saying to the Lord is, Lord, look, I know you had to suffer for this, but I just want you to suffer a little bit more so I can have what I want here. And we go back and we make him suffer more. Paul says we crucify him again. And it never even occurs to us that we've offended a person. We've hurt a person. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, Paul said, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The term for grieved here refers to being emotionally wounded, to be offended. When we sin, it's not just a violation of the law. It's an offense against a person. 
if you desire Christ, if he is what you are seeking after, sin will break your heart, not because you failed to live up to some standard, not because you broke the law. It'll break your heart because you hurt someone that you love. Is Christ what you truly desire the most? Do you seek after him in everything? If you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, what should you do? Seek after Christ. Make him the object of your life. Make him the focus of your life. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. But this leads to a second question and the second point of the sermon. How do I do this? How do I seek after Christ? Look at verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. The practical means of seeking Christ is to set your mind on the things above. You might say it this way, to think intently upon There's no such thing as neutral thinking. Your mind is either focusing on things of heaven or it's focusing on the things of this world. Paul told the Romans in Romans 12, renew their minds, renew your mind. How do you do that? By aligning your thoughts, aligning your mind with the commands of God. Later in this chapter, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells the Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Repeatedly, Paul reminds his readers to focus their thoughts on the right things. Philippians 4, verse 8, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. In the Old Testament, Psalm 1, the blessed man, the man who has the favor of God, is the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. He fixes his mind on the things of God. If you want to seek Christ in your life, if you want Christ to be the center of your life, fill your mind with Scripture. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Listen to sermons constantly. You live in the 21st century. You can listen to sermons anytime you want. Play good hymns. We just sang four rich hymns. They're rich in theology. Spend time in the Gospels. Not so you can learn some facts, but so you can learn about a person. So that you can love him more. Keep the Lord Jesus on your mind. Keep his words in your thoughts. Make sure you're consumed by him. And everything else just kind of fades away. Think of it this way. We live in South Texas, and summer is fast approaching. Everyone excited? If you walked outside on a sunny day and just stared up at the sun, the S-U-N, for 30 minutes, just stared right at it for 30 minutes, what would happen? You'd lose some of your eyesight, wouldn't you? You'd burn your retinas. You might go permanently blind. Let me put it a different way. You're going to stare at the sun long enough that the whole world's going to go dark to you. 
The key to the Christian life is to stare at the sun, the S-O-N, the sun, and be captivated by the light of the world that everything else in the world just goes dark. And you just don't care about it. Fill your mind with thoughts of Christ. Fill your mind with Scripture. It's when you allow your mind to wander, when you become distracted by the world and the business of life around you, that's when you run into problems. Look at verse 2 again. He says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. A fruit of the new life is a transformed mind that dwells on heavenly realities. But those who don't have this new life, one of the characteristics of them is they set their minds on earthly things. Paul says in Romans 8, 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Those who are still spiritually dead have lives marked by thoughts that dwell on and think about constantly the things of this world, their own desires, carnal things, They have no part of this new life. The only life they have is the one here on earth, their physical life. And their minds stay focused right here. That's not you anymore. That person died. You have a new life. Paul here in Colossians 3 contrasts the things that are above with the things that are on the earth. And it reveals that if setting your mind on the things above is to align yourself with the will and the desires and the priorities of heaven, then to set your mind on the things of the earth is to do the opposite. Is to focus your life and your mind on things that God hates and despises. These things are to be rejected. In Philippians 3, Paul explains this further. And he describes the kind of person who sets their mind on earthly things. Philippians 3, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. I don't want to be described by that. An enemy of the cross. An enemy of Christ, whose end is destruction. Whose God is their appetite. They worship their own desires. They seek after their own desires. And their life is consumed by things of this world. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul, to be sure, is not arguing you should have no concern for your physical life. It's not his argument. Nor is he suggesting that every care and concern of this life should just be done away with. He has given all of us responsibilities in this world, and he expects us to fulfill them. Paul's point is that while you seek to live faithfully on the earth, Your ultimate focus and desire in this life is on Christ, 
focusing your mind on heaven and the spiritual realities. If you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, what should you do? Keep seeking Christ. How should you do it? By setting your mind on the things above, filling your mind with thoughts of Scripture and of Christ. Now, to be sure, if you've done this, this isn't easy. This takes discipline. It takes devotion. This is hard to do, especially in a world filled with distractions. I mean, Facebook is hard enough to keep it from distracting you. And the difficulty of this task may lead some to ask our third question. Why should I do it? I mean, if the last wasn't enough, what's the more motivation for doing this? And Paul's actually going to give us two answers to this question. And the first one is found in verse 3. For you have died. And your life, your new life, is hidden with Christ in God. The first reason Paul gives for you to seek Christ, to set your mind on heavenly things, to set your mind on Christ, is that your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is why Paul says you should seek after him. He says, you have died. You died to the things of the world. Your life of seeking after the things of the world, that's gone. You are dead to it. You should not be responsive to it. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. When you came to faith in Christ, your life of dwelling on and focusing on things of the world died. You are incapable. You should consider yourself incapable of responding. You have been united with Christ. And he has conquered all sin. Colossians 2 verse 15. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And it's not fitting for a person who has been liberated, a person who is united with Christ, to continue living as a person who's still dead in their sins and trespasses. You died with Christ and you have been given new life. And you could no more turn back to that old life than a person who's living would like to live in a tomb. Charles Spurgeon spoke of conversion. And he said, at conversion, the things of the world and sin become a tomb to us. To a dead man, a sepulcher is as good a dwelling as he could want. But the moment the dead man lives, he will not endure such a bedchamber. He calls it a dreary vault, a loathsome dungeon, and he must leave it as, at once. You died to the things of this world. You died to sin. And you have a new life in Christ, and that life is hidden with Christ. Your life, your new life is not here on this earth. Your new life is hidden with Christ in heaven. So why is your mind still focused on the things of this world? 
When he says your life is hidden with Christ, what he's saying is the source of your life is in heaven. Christ is the source of your life. He is the means of your life. He is the object and the goal of your life. And without him, you can do nothing. Your spiritual life is hidden. It's hidden in Christ and with Christ. The world does not see it. They don't even understand it. If you try to explain the spiritual life, the life of a Christian who struggles with sin, even sin no one else knows about, but you still feel terrible about it, they will be completely confused. 1 Corinthians 2.14, they just can't understand. You have a source of power they do not know and they do not have access to. Why should you seek after Christ? Because that is where your life is hidden. And if it's hidden with him, that means it's protected by him. It is now secure. That is where you will find the strength to live a life that is pleasing to God. And note the end of the verse. Hidden with Christ in God. Once again, Paul draws the connection between Christ and the Father. Your spiritual life is in Christ. It is protected and secure not only with Christ. It is secure with the Father. Jesus said in John 10, All that the Father gives me I will receive and I will not lose one. He said no one is able to take them out of my hand. And then he also said no one is able to take them out of the Father's hand. Peter said you have a salvation that is protected for you in heaven. But what is now hidden, well, I got ahead of myself. Paul now moves to the second answer to the question of why should I do it? Why should I seek after Christ? Well, first, my life is hidden there. My source of strength is there. Second reason you should, look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, First note that Paul identifies Christ with this phrase, who is our life. He's not merely associating believers with Christ. He's saying that for believers, Christ is life. He gives meaning and purpose to life. That outside of Christ, your life has no meaning, no value. Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul couldn't even describe his life without speaking of Christ. His entire life was centered on that relationship. All of his desires, all of his wants, everything that he was as a person was submitted to Christ. Not only is Christ our life, look again at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. In verse 3, Paul said that our life was hidden with Christ in God. And now he tells us that our life will one day be revealed. Why should you seek after Christ? Because one day you will be revealed with him in glory. 
Paul points to a literal return of Christ. In Titus, he says this is the hope of every believer. It's not the hope of unbelievers. For the unbelieving who seek after the earthly things, they will face the wrath of God. Colossians 3, 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. For the unbelieving, Christ's return is a dread. But for those who fill their minds with thoughts of Christ, for those who seek after him, he will be revealed. Your desire for him will be satisfied. He will return, and when he returns, you will be revealed. This life that is now hidden from the world will be revealed. And you will be in glory. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that we will meet the Lord in the air. And he says you should comfort one another with a thought that you will always be with him. 1 Corinthians 15, he says we're going to put off our perishable bodies. The bodies that get sick, the bodies that age and decay and die, we're going to put those off. And we're going to receive imperishable bodies, bodies that will be immortal. We will be glorified. Your transformation of the image of Christ will be one day completed. Why should you seek after Christ? Because your new life is hidden with him and because he will return for you and he will reveal that glorious life. He will set you free from the sin of this world. He will transform you finally and completely into his image. Are you ready to see the Lord? Do you desire for him to return? If you've been watching the news, you probably want him to come back pretty quick. But if you don't know Christ, if you have not trusted in him, if you have not realized the futility of works righteousness, of trying to earn a place with God, if you're still running from Christ in your sin, if you're still clinging to the things of this world, Christ will return for you. It's just he'll return to meet you in judgment. John 5.22, Jesus said, The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Joey read this verse earlier out of Psalm 2. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you're not a believer... If you have not trusted in Christ, you need to do so now because you are not promised to tomorrow. Christ could return before the service ends. But if you are a believer, these truths should just warm your heart. They should make you glad, bring you joy. Thinking on Christ, dwelling on what he has done for you should result in you giving him praise and glory. And I really do pray that we would all spend more of our life, more of our time just thinking on, dwelling on, and seeking to love Christ more. Let's pray. Father, 
you know the desires of our heart? You know, even when we have a great desire to be with Christ and to love Him, there are so many times that we just seem to fall short. And even that causes us to praise you more because you are merciful and you are loving and you are kind. But your mercy, your love, and your kindness is all bound up in Christ. And so we just ask as we leave here today that we would devote more of our lives to Him. That we would be pleasing to Him in everything. That we would leave here not talking about the service, not even necessarily talking about a sermon, but we would leave here fixated and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.